Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Chat GPT. Everyone's talking about it. We had to talk about it too. Nahal, have you played with Chat GPT at all? No, I haven't. I feel like it's a bit murky for me as a journalist and a writer and an editor to venture into that territory. Okay, that's a very respectable position. A lot of people are taking the opposite approach, it seems, and just jumping right in. I've heard of ChatGPT being used as a pro bono lawyer. It's been taking classes at MBA schools, and I recently read an article that it actually just passed a coding test for a $300,000 job at Google. That sounds like an invitation to test it out. But an article that I worked on, the author had described ChatGPT as autocomplete gone wild. And I found that a really interesting way of thinking about that particular kind of technology and what it can and cannot do. Mm. Yeah, this generative AI, right? It's ChatGPT that, like you said, is kind of like autocomplete gone wild, but it's also Dolly, this other AI algorithm that allows you to just input some text and then it'll spit out an image, computer generated. And there was a story about a person who illustrated an entire children's book using Dolly. And that raised a lot of heckles amongst the artist community. Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation about it in different industries and how it could be used and applied to make work more efficient, more accurate, more reliable. But I think it also changes how we understand and view the information presented to us in the world. Absolutely. And I think there's a really important question here that I haven't seen examined too much out in the media right now is underlying all these potential changes is the question of access, right? People now have access to powerful AI. And to me, this seems like a really interesting change. So words like artificial intelligence and generative AI are now starting to become more prominent in our everyday conversations. But what are we talking about here, really? I think you hit the nail on the head here, Nahal, and that is exactly where we're going to start this episode, getting some definitions down and really explaining in a simple way how generative AI and AI more broadly basically works. And to help us do that, I reached out to Daniel Acuna. He is a computer scientist at the University of Colorado in Boulder in the United States, and he studies not only how AIs work, but also some of the problems that arise from the way these models are trained. Generative AI has become really popular. And the basic idea is that, I guess, traditionally, AI has been more about you give something to the computer and the computer makes a decision based on that input. Uh, So that could be, for example, you take a picture with your phone and you want the computer to say, you know, what is in the picture? Like what kind of objects are in the picture? Kind of like pattern recognition. I know that was kind of a lot of the training of more classical AI. So that's, I would say that's a narrower definition of what the pioneers in the field wanted. So they wanted like a full-blown intelligent agent. But now people like really talk about AI, but what they really mean, in my view, is more like pattern recognition, as you say, or machine learning. So you have that, you have like an input, an image, and then you have, okay, which category, for example, that image belongs to? Is it a tree? Is it a car? Things like that. Now, generative AI is a little bit more sophisticated in that you give the machine multiple points, let's say in this case, multiple images, and then the machine will learn a representation of the images so that then you can say, or you can now go, and the computer will generate images. So instead of saying this image contains this, it will 
learn from the data and it will start generating data that looks ideally like the data you fed into the machine. Most modern powerful AI algorithms, including generative AI, are trained using a process called deep learning. You feed the algorithms a ton of data and let the models figure out the patterns within that data on their own. But earlier AI systems required a much more hands-on approach. So perhaps let me explain a little bit what happened before deep learning. How did we, because we still had like AI and machine learning back then. And so how was that different? So in the past, how these AI and models will work is that you will have a lot of human intervention. So if you want like a model for classifying objects in an image or generating data, you will have to produce as a human, as an expert, lots of help for the machine. You will need to create what we call feature engineer. So you wouldn't give the machine the raw image, like the actual picture from the camera, but you will like pre-process it with lots of clever what we call filters or features. And then you will give it to a machine that perhaps will be simpler than what we have today. Kind of making the data more easily digestible or more fits into the machine world better. Exactly. So the models were simpler. We also say that the models were more interpretable and that's a very key distinction. So you will be able to understand what the models were doing because you saw literally how it took what the human produced and then what it predicted they couldn't scale too well with the data. So you gave it more data to these simple models, they wouldn't just learn. They would just have what we call a lot of bias. It would just stay as they are. It didn't matter if you gave it like 20 terabytes of data. They would just be not enough to adjust to the new data set. Now, after 2012, I mean, people were working on deep learning before, but 2012 and 2013 marked the time where deep learning was introduced into computer vision and basically destroyed the best possible algorithms, old-fashioned algorithms for a task called image classification. So basically uh, predicting what an image contains. Does it is a tree, a car, and things like that. And the way that it works is just produce a very, very deep model. So basically many, many layers of recursive functions that are non-linear and that are basically really, really powerful, but they need a lot of data. So for this to work and be able to generalize, you need lots and lots of data. You needed lots of compute. And you needed new architectures for training them. Okay. And it's essentially, instead of saying, we're going to train you on this, it's the training is going to be directed and straightforward. We'll just boost the computing power of these systems, give them a ton of data, and it's going to take a little bit more work on the back end, but eventually the models will teach themselves how to be much better than direct input could ever teach them. Exactly. And something beautiful happened in a sense, like, Instead of us, let's say for the image classification example that I gave you, instead of having humans produce these high level and very rich features, we didn't do anything. So you didn't need an expert. You just gave the machine literally the image from the camera. And the machine, in a sense, is, is able to figure out how to create features that represent what that image contains. And it, it will be different from different tasks. But yeah, you needed lots of data. You needed lots of compute. And the same thing happened with generative AI. So we had generative AI before what I sometimes refer as Bayesian statistics, but you needed like a lot of human intervention. But now, like for DALI, we can have, you know, pairs of captions and images and millions of them, and the model will be able to just learn what is the relationship between text and the image. 
So all this is to say that the type of AI behind ChatGPT isn't exactly new. It's just so much more powerful and has been trained on so much more data than anything that came before. And this is what allows it to do the things old AI systems could never dream of. But a really important question here is what data was ChatGPT trained on? Well, the answer is that we don't really know. There are people speculating. OpenAI is a company, it's a private startup, basically. So it's not open. We don't know how it was trained. But the speculation based on the capabilities is that perhaps was trained on Wikipedia, on books. And because it's partnered with Microsoft, it's probably be using the scrape copy that Bing search engine has about the web. It's also using perhaps all of GitHub. So GitHub is, is a company where people post their code. So programmers, for example, will upload their project there and they will make it open source. So all the code from different programming languages will be available there. And it seems that OpenAI also trained ChatGPT on that code. And because it's using the internet, it's trained on all languages. So it works on Spanish and on German, French, and of course, English. The internet is without a doubt the most giant repository of information and language and images available, which is exactly what you want to use to train an AI. But it is also no secret that a lot of bad parts of humanity are present on the internet too. The problem is that these models, they need data. And we know that if we are feeding data from the past and even data from today, they will contain some biases in the sense that they will relate some words, let's say, like my own work is about occupations. So these models will find relationships between words and how they are used with certain genders or certain races. So fixing these, the the internal things might be difficult. And if you're going to fix it, you got to fix the data, which is just people. (laughs) You can't fix people really, right? You can't really fix people. There have been a lot of studies done showing bias in AI generally. And Daniel is concerned companies and organizations are using generative AI in very sensitive ways without first dealing with these biases. I know that a mental health intervention company, and it's based on peers. I think at the moment it's free, but basically in the past, you will like, let's say you have mental health issues or you're feeling like a little down or with some anxiety, you can contact a group, so you will have like peers reaching back to you and say, hey, how's it going? Let's talk a little bit about it. That takes time, and then sometimes you wouldn't have peers around. So they introduced recently uh, generative models, so it will, it will kind of generate back, okay, how are things going? You can have like a chat with this, like a bot talking to you. Uh, the oldest that I can think of is a company. It was founded by a, a woman who's, I don't know if it was a friend or a boyfriend who died, and she said, is there a way for me to kind of replicate my friend? Because I have thousands of text messages oh, wow. from this friend. And, and she built like a chat generative model very early that will kind of replicate how her friend replies, the humor and things like that. And they're now, of course, they're wow. using much more sophisticated generative models and they have like a virtual world. So you can create like your own virtual friend. The idea started when you wanted to replicate someone who you miss dearly, but now it's being used for people who want to literally have virtual friends. Whoa. So, I mean, those last two examples are pretty wild, right? Like getting mental health advice and also replicating a loved one or someone, just anyone really, to have conversations with. So uh, these models, obviously, like we spoke about, 
are kind of built with inherent bias just because of the way they work. So, you know, when you hear these stories about generative models being used by organizations, are you like, oh, gosh, like, I hope that mental health bot isn't being biased or racist or sexist. Like, are you worried about that kind of stuff when you hear about these use cases? <laughs> uh, yes, I am worried. Um and I hope that whoever is using those models uh, is aware of these issues. Computer scientists and other scholars are actively and openly talking about these problems at conferences and within the halls of academia. But again, short of fixing the internet, and that really means fixing the people that fill the internet with content, it's difficult to protect AIs from training on bad data. There's an old saying in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. And that's true with generative AI as much as anything else. But despite these challenges, Daniel is optimistic about the potential uses of this technology, especially as more and more people gain access to powerful generative AI models. If I weigh kind of the positive and negative, I think I come out positive overall. Uh, I think they offer just so many possibilities for helping with, with like things just for me. I mean, like I would like to have things that will help me write emails, like reply to emails while keeping my style and personalizing the email in an intelligent manner. Of course, I need to review the rewriting. So I think it offers many, many possibilities. And I'm biased because I work in science, so I would like love to have better ways of searching knowledge that is like what other people have written. So now it's very manual. So we need much more intelligent ways of parsing publications like we need better ways of yeah. understanding what a paper is talking about like what are the subjects the patients what are the results and pulling all of that together and presenting them but i could imagine like good applications of this technology so that that gives me lots of hope and i think it's going to be very exciting and i hope that me and, and colleagues working on bias and ai can keep complaining and raising our voices Okay, so this is interesting. You have all of these concerns about AI and bias, but on the other hand, it seems that you can use AI to address the effects of structural inequalities or bias. That's the hope, right? Uh, I know you said you weren't a technological optimist, but this is what the techno-futurist people have been saying about technologies forever. There's a real question here, though, of whether this applies to artificial intelligence, in particular generative AI, and there isn't really enough data to say yes or no either way because it's so new, at least in terms of widespread access. But researchers have been studying this question. Do new technologies, as they become widespread, change the nature of economic and social relationships and improve lives. So I reached out to someone who's been studying these very questions for nearly two decades. My name is Kentaro Toyama. I'm a faculty member at the School of Information at the University of Washington. My research is about digital technology and community development. And I look particularly at how all kinds of digital technologies um, actually affect our attempts to improve society in some way. In 2004, fresh out of graduate school, Kantara moved to India to help set up a research lab for Microsoft. He ended up staying there for five years. At the time, there was little existing data on the impact of new technologies like the internet on quality of life of low-income people in developing nations. But as a young researcher entering the field, Kantara was optimistic that new technologies could really improve people's lives. 
that was a time when everybody was still very optimistic about what digital technology could do. Uh, and so, you know, many people, including me to some extent, believed that things like, you know, bringing people the internet and allowing people to, you know, get an education online or do telemedicine would possibly dramatically transform their lives. I would say that era of trying to engage you know, what we often would call the developing world with digital technology was based on this optimism that somehow severe poverty of a kind that had existed for, you know, generations before then, that somehow we could make inroads on that with this new technology. And I want to just kind of dig into this idea of improving kind of conditions of poverty, because there's on the one hand, getting daily life a little bit better, improvements to your daily, which is huge, important. But then there's this other point about more equal distribution of wealth and power. So are those two, were those intrinsically tied at the beginning or were those separate ideas that you needed to tease apart? At least going in, I did not necessarily focus on inequality as such, although, you know, to the extent that we were hoping to alleviate poverty, I think addressing inequality is implicit. But at least at the time, it seemed like, you know, there was plenty to go around and that economic opportunity existed for everyone. And it was really just a question of unleashing that potential for people. And with respect to technology, I don't think there was as much consciousness that somehow there was potentially something of a zero-sum game where some people would win and some people would lose. That early optimism wasn't entirely unjustified. In 2007, as India was in the midst of its large-scale adoption of cell phones, a researcher published a paper about the impact cell phones brought about on a fishing community. There's a classic paper in my field by an economist named Rob Jensen. And what he found was that With the arrival of mobile phones on the coast of Kerala in South India, the local fishermen benefited measurably in economic terms, as well as the local consumers of fish. And basically what happened was that prior to cell phones, individual fishing ships that were out at sea didn't necessarily know which market on shore they should go to for the best price. And so they would go to whatever they were either used to or that they had guessed. But with the arrival of cell phones, they were able to call in in advance while still at sea and then take their catch to the place where they would get the best price. And what Jensen found was that there was an overall 8 to 9% increase in profits for fishermen and then 4% for average consumers of fish in that area. And so that's dramatic. But... One of the things about our field is that we have strived very hard to find a similar kind of welfare impact in other contexts because of things like mobile phones, and we have struggled to find it. You know, I've spoken with Jensen, and one of the things that he said that was very interesting was he thought very hard about where and in what context he could demonstrate Hmm. this effect. So he was an economist, and he wanted to illustrate how when markets have perfect information, they become more efficient, right? And he was trying to find a situation where that could be demonstrated. Um, But it's surprisingly hard. Like, for example, fish are a very specific kind of commodity where if you don't sell it by the end of the day, they go bad, right? Unless you have storage, and they didn't. And so... You know, if you're talking about agricultural goods like seeds, well, guess what? You can store them. So you have a lot more control over when you sell and so on. Um, And that apparently decreases that kind of benefit. Despite Kentaro's initial optimism, it turned out that new technologies didn't really produce large scale benefits for low income people in India. These technologies, while potentially very useful tools, weren't actually changing social and economic systems. He saw this pattern play out repeatedly during his five years doing research in India. What I ultimately discovered was that 
it was, on the one hand, quite possible to get research results that were positive where some kind of technology would enhance the situation, whether it was in a government school or in a clinic. But it was nearly impossible to take that technological idea and then have it have impact at wider scale. And because we ran into the same issue so many times over and over and over again, you know, I started asking myself, why, why is this? And why can we have good research results in, you know, quote unquote, the lab in a constrained setting that we controlled? And why was it so hard to get that to happen in, quote unquote, the real world? And the main conclusion I came to was that technology, even the best designed technology, wasn't the cause of positive change. It was really underlying human institutions and capacities. And where those things existed, we could take technology and make things better. But where those things were themselves the problem, then no amount of well-designed technology would turn things around. Kintaro's conclusion has become the consensus among researchers. In the research community that I work with, there's a general agreement that technology can sometimes have very clear positive economic and social benefits, but that they're very hard to find in a way that is consistent and meaningful. So in terms of access to technology, improving the lives of poor communities in India, across the world, or even here in the US, right? Does ChatGPT make it so that the people at the bottom are going to be better off. Do you think so or no? Yeah, it's tempting to believe that, but I don't think so. Um, And here, in that respect, I think ChatGPT is just like any other technology. And the best way that I have to think about that is, you know, consider any technology, like let's say Facebook, right? A terrific tool, which for, you know, many people can really be a lifesaver in some cases. Nevertheless, on average, Nobody benefits from being a user of Facebook as much as the creators of Facebook benefit, right? All of the economic benefit of Facebook, or most of it anyway, goes to the people who create it, the people who own shares in it, and you know, possibly some of its customers who pay Facebook money. Uh, whereas the users are, you know, whatever benefit they get is a very, very small fraction of the total benefit that Facebook might put out in the world. And conversely, the users might be bearing the brunt of the harms that a platform like Facebook puts out there, whereas the company is largely insulated from that. And in the same way, I think we see the same thing with ChatGPT. The easiest way to think about technology's impact on society is that technology amplifies underlying human forces. And In our current world, those human forces are aligned in a way that the rich get richer and inequality keeps growing. And so if you take a powerful technology and add it to that mix, it just exacerbates that inequality. However, if we were able to figure out a way to run the world so that it is shrinking inequality over time, then I would say the technology will also automatically amplify that impact. And so... Without changing anything about the technology, you know, the same social political systems would start using it towards eroding inequality. Semi-techno-pessimism is flaring up again. What I'm hearing is that these technologies aren't countering or addressing power injustices or imbalances, but they're helping reinforce them. Sure, some people benefit, but ultimately most of the benefits accumulate for larger companies like Facebook. It's true. And Kintaro has been studying this for a long time. And he mentioned something to me that I found a little sad, perhaps, but he's kind of stopped asking the question, does widespread access to technology 
change power structures because he thinks the answer is people need to change. The systems need to change. Technology won't do it on its own. Well, do technologies ever change the system? That is, I think, the fundamental question that we've been kind of building towards in this episode, Nahal. And I spoke to someone who's been looking at that. So Thierry Reyna is a professor of innovation management and chair of technology for change at École Polytechnique in France. And he's been studying how access to technologies can change the structure of economic systems. And he started this work actually in the early 2000s, looking at the digitization of music and for anyone who remembers, looking at Napster. But I thought, hang on, actually, if you take music and you make it digital, it sort of changes the property of the product. It basically belongs a non-rival. I mean, you know, people can make copies of it. And, you know, it's not like an apple. If I eat it, you can't have it. And because it's non-rival, it means you can't prevent people from using the product, unlike an apple, because people are going to spread it. And that in economics is called a public good. It's a completely different product. It doesn't have the same economic nature, so we have to revisit everything. When you've been looking at whether it's 3D printing or digitized music, when some of these technologies first burst onto the scene, have you seen patterns in how they spread and how access to them is generated? Are there similarities in how access grows as new technologies emerge on the scene, or is it really a case-by-case thing? I think there is a lot of similarities. And typically, these digital technologies, first, they're very expensive, and they are basically used by companies. So if you think about digital music, that's exactly what happened, is basically in order to switch from records to the CD, it's a huge investment in terms of just making the CD work. And then, of course, once you create the CD, you need to create all the recording equipment, you know, in the studios. And it's a very, very heavy investment. So first, the companies are using them. And because they're using them and it spreads across companies, then the, the prices tend to drop. And then it reaches a point where some consumers, some end user are going to actually use the technology. So, of course, the first idea of having CDRs, recordable CDs, the idea was not that people would pirate the hell out of the recording industry. <laughs> these, these were meant actually for data storage and data recording. At the time, we still had floppy disks. But then people like say, hang on. You know, actually, this thing I'm using to back up stuff at my work, gee, if I did put a CD in it, what would happen? Oh, I can make a copy of it. So then it became sort of very democratic. And it's interesting as well, because it's not just people taking in technologies, it's also companies promoting technologies. So, for instance, uh, then computers started to appear with CD burners and out of sudden, you know, everyone who didn't ask for it would be able to actually copy and make copies of CDs. So um, there are always these kind of patterns where first companies are developing it for themselves. Uh, it sort of improves their process and then they see a profit in getting people to actually use the technology. But by doing that, they open the door to people using it. And as with digital music and Napster, 
companies are generally not super good at anticipating how people will use these technologies once they have access to them. And that's because companies and individuals are working towards very different goals. It's very logical. The way companies see these technologies, it's basically to, uh, even though they they keep saying that they are looking for disruption. Usually they are not because they will look at usages where they can make more money. And that typically means that companies tend to use new technology to do what they normally do, but a bit better. Whereas what people do, they would actually use the technology to think of needs they have and are typically not covered by companies. So in fact, Terry says, the user ends up being the innovator. This fundamentally changes the relationship from one where there was a centralized producer and a passive consumer and creates what he calls a prosumer economic model. And this is where individuals are both producers and consumers, aka prosumers. So in this situation, the job that was the monopoly of the company, so um, design, manufacturing, replication, distribution, communication, is available to everyone. And if it's not just end users doing it, then you get tons of startups who actually are going to do it for end users. So that puts us in a situation where consumers, I mean, people were fairly perceived since the first industrial revolution. I mean, you know, the product would be designed, manufactured, and distributed uh, very close to you. And, you know, you just get it and actually use it. Uh, to a situation where increasingly people have become prosumers, meaning they are actively involved in the production process. So basically, I'm both a producer and a consumer. Whichever technology you pick, digital music, web platform technologies, blockchain, 3D printing, you know, whatever you name it, they all actually cumulatively do that. So the more you bring some and the more people are able to create, replicate, distribute, manufacture, communicate. So what happens with all these digital technologies that people become prosumers instead of being just passive. When people become a prosumer, producer and consumer, what is it they're producing? Because you mentioned, you know, for the digital music, if I download something legally and I buy it off iTunes or whatever, and most people are streaming now, and that's a different conversation. Well, how does that change the relationship? Because I'm still just paying and storing it at my house, just like I would store a CD on a CD yeah. case or whatever. So what is the production aspect there? Like, yes, it's using my bandwidth and stuff, but does that give me more power as a consumer? Or how does that change the relationship between the music production company and me? Well, I mean, it gives you as a consumer more power and less power. As it gives you more power over the other companies, if you're not satisfied with what they offer, you can actually do it yourself and share it with other users, either for free or you can actually create your own startup. And if we come back again to the issue of music, you know, many people were dissatisfied with the major companies, so there were the labels that were created, which were catering for sort of a different public, but being a label was so complicated that you had to belong to a major. With YouTube, it's gone. I mean, you know, you want actually to create your own label, you know, you just put your music on YouTube, you find people, you have them record, and that's gone. So it gives you more power. Thierry also pointed out that once the ability to produce something is in the hands of the many, while the quality often does go down, so too does the cost of the product. The question then is whether people value free stuff more than they value good stuff. There has been this long-standing argument that actually what people were doing were not as high quality 
as what you know the pros were doing. I mean, this has been something that was applied to journalism. This has been something which applied to music. I mean, usually there was this thing. Well, you know, if you're not going to the recording company, then you get artists which are unknown and their music is not as good as the Beatles ones. Well, that's correct, but it's for free. It's for free. Okay. And, you know, yeah, cool. I can pay for quality or something that is not that good, but you know what? It's for free. And, you know, I can tell you that very often free wins. So based on Thierry's argument, you might now be thinking, okay, we're in a prosumer system, free often wins, therefore the power rests with the individual. But Thierry pointed out something very interesting. As the number of product options increases exponentially, the act of finding content, not producing it, becomes the challenge. And in this world, platforms that host content and trusted influencers that highlight products and drive trends... These become the valuable players within the system, the ones who wield power. In a situation where everybody's producing stuff and people are consuming from other people, the main issue is the choice becomes absolutely overwhelming. So you're in a situation where you would have three major brands or you would have a top 50 of you know known artists or the top 10 of the best movies to a situation where out of sudden you get millions of people offering music and films and news and software and whatever. And that means that you could spend your entire life just trying to grows through. So this prosumerization leads to another uh, phenomenon. This is the other side of the coin is platformization. So basically the platforms are, are the gatekeepers who make sure that you can search, you see everything. And they try to sort of keep at bay people who might not be the you know great ones. Terry says that for companies to compete with all the free products available and survive, they need to change their business model. It's very hard to compete with free when you're a company, and many industries have had to deal with that. But if you open yourself as a company, and effectively if you become a platform, if you stop thinking that your job is to produce things for something, but instead you see yourself as an enabler, and you try to use these strengths of the crowd to do things or to complement your product, then of course you keep the power. That's something which is very important. That's basically what makes the GAFAM being the GAFAM. I'm not familiar. What was that word you used? GAFAM? Oh, sorry. That's the way we call them in French. So it's Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. Ah, got it, got it, got it. And they, at some point, realized that, you know, with the power of the crowd, they could win. We tend to forget that the first iPhone was released without the App Store. There was no SDK. Steve Jobs believed in the integration between software and hardware, and there was no way anyone but an Apple developer would actually put software on the new iPhone. And then change their mind, they released the SDK, which enabled 12-year-old kids, or even less, to you know uh, program great software. And the prices went completely down, and they retained the power, actually, effectively. So the power of companies is lost, provided they actually they change business models and they realize that actually if they want to survive in this world, they have to actually open themselves and actually just act like one of these platforms. 
Well, and to return to your earlier point, they're a platform, but they are the influencers, right? Apple, by yeah. choosing what is at the top of the app store, by oh, selecting what can and cannot go in, they become the controllers of influence rather than the producers absolutely. of the actual product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They are the meta-influencers because there is so much noise out there that everybody knows that their search algorithm is, of course, it's truncated and it's sorted according to some rules that only they know. Yeah, search yeah. engine optimization. That's how you win or lose in pretty much anything these days. So, I mean, it's interesting. And to return back to the generative AI thing, like, yes, with ChatGPT or Dolly or any of these things, everyone can produce content. But you're saying, essentially, if I'm understanding the argument correctly, that as long as the companies that hold the power now figure out how to maintain the control of influence, maintain the power to be the kingmaker, these technologies, digital technologies, generative AI, it'll increase maybe the quality, but... Maybe not, but either way, it's not really going to throw these companies off unless they make a mistake. They don't adapt. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Thierry doesn't stop here, though. In the very near future, he thinks that people will not only be able to use AI models, but build them and train them on their own. And the ability of a person to train their own AI algorithm could really knock platforms and influencers out of their place of power. This is probably the first time in a long while that the platforms are actually in danger. Uh, oh, because, so? of course, well, because there are more and more pre-trained AI modules which are available, which people can actually train them and they can integrate them in their own software. And that is really completely open because there is nothing you can control. So, of course, if uh, there is a way for you to actually search through the data without needing Google or without needing Facebook or anything else, then it sort of removes the power of these platforms. But at the same time, AI is completely black box. So, you know, you will have no idea what is a good black box and what is a bad black box. Because all these things that are going to be integrated in a piece of software, you don't know what's in it. So either these companies, they actually stay doing what they are doing, and down the line, they might have a big problem, or they say, okay, you know what? Now you live in a world which is even more complicated than it used to be. Uh, software used to be written with code. Now software is written by training of a black box that yelled, yes, you're another black box. And you know what? Um, we are going to play our role of gatekeeper and we're going to ensure you that if you choose that and that and that and that software, even though no one is able to tell what's in the black box, we guarantee that it's going to be fine. And if there is a problem, well, you know, it's the usual Amazon return policy. We're going to take care of it. So Dan, what I'm understanding is that as access to generative AI technologies increasing, people aren't just users of this technology, they shift into being prosumers, creating the kind of content that they want to consume. And this has happened with, like Thierry was explaining, digital media and a lot of other technologies, 3D printing and stuff. But he mentions at the end of our chat, this idea that generative AI and kind of AI more broadly might break this prosumer model in a way because AIs could, in theory, replace the gatekeepers, replace the influencers, replace the trendsetters. And we haven't seen that yet, but I found it interesting that he was projecting forward and saying, this one might break the trend. All right. So maybe my techno-pessimism is fading a little bit at this point, 
But what about what Kentaro said earlier on, that it wasn't the technologies that changed things, but people's approaches and beliefs that changed them? You're in Kentaro's pessimism today. Absolutely true, it seems like, right? Generative AI, or AI more broadly, hasn't really changed the nature of the relationship between individuals and the corporations or organizations that maintain power. But like Thierry, when Kentaro started looking forward 5, 10, 15 years and thinking about how strong AI and generative AI might get, he was open to the possibility that unlike other technologies of the past, generative AI could be the technology that does lead to radical change in the world. Some people know this concept called the singularity, which is the moment when a computing system equals human intelligence, and then from that point on, it just gets better and better. Technologies like ChatGPT are basically showing us that we are very close to the singularity. My guess is, you know, history will look back and say, the singularity happened sometime in this decade, starting, you know, about a year ago. Human civilization has never seen anything animal or otherwise that equals itself in intelligence, right? And we are now beginning to see machines that are approaching it and in many ways exceed it. So I do think it is different from other technologies and it will have impacts that are very hard to predict for that reason. I do think that technologies like ChatGPT will put more and more pressure on a larger and larger population of the world to reconsider the current way that our economy is set up. And so I think, you know, the silver lining to all of this is that when 95% of the human population becomes unemployable because of AI, we will demand a substantial change in the economic system that I think hopefully will become more egalitarian. that is it for this episode. Thank you so much to the academics we spoke to this week, Daniel Acuna, Kentaro Toyama, and Thierry Reyna. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced by Katie Flood and me, Dan Marino, and written by Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does the transcripts. Mend Marwani is the show's executive producer. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thank you for listening. <laughs>